Good evening. And welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library Brown Lecture Series, which is sponsored by a generous gift from the Eddie and Sylvia Brown Foundation. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, and on behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, I would like to extend to each of you a warm welcome to the Pratt Library. This evening, we are honored to have as our guest speaker, Daryl Pinckney, who is a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books and the author of a novel, High Cotton, and Out There, Mavericks of Black Literature. This evening, Mr. Pinckney will discuss his latest work, Blackballed, The Black Vote in U.S. Democracy, which shares his reflections on a century and a half of black participation in U.S. electoral politics. Please join me in welcoming Daryl Pinckney to the City of Baltimore and the Pratt Library. Thank you for coming out on a night that threatens all sorts of non-Southern weather. Uh, I'm going to do something really ungracious, which is at a certain time, look at you with panic, run out the door and go get on a train. It'll just happen suddenly, and that's... That's what I'm doing. I'm running away. Is that okay? So I thought that, uh, I mean, the book, well, there it is. and It's one thing, but after the elections, I just wanted to talk to some people. So this is sort of what now, uh, and it's different from the book. Uh, so Anyway, on Tuesday, November 4th, I voted in the lobby of the Adam Clayton Powell State Office Building in Harlem. It was the end of the lunch hour, but there was no line. There were more volunteers than there were voters. The volunteers were of a certain age, middle-aged, black, with Caribbean accents here and there. They sat at the tables with the rolls, the names of registered voters, or stood by the metal shelves where voters were to mark their paper ballots, or waited to guide voters to the machines where the ballots were scanned and counted. I was voter number 150 that day, a volunteer said. She seemed tired. She had so many dusty braids rising from her gray head that they appeared to be weighing her down. The state office building is most unattractive. In my Columbia University days in the 1970s, we thought we were very clever to compare it to Brasilia, which we imagined as a sterile, artificial place for government bureaucracy. I don't know when the plaza spreading out from the office building's concrete legs acquired a bronze statue of Congressman Powell striding uphill, his coat blown open. Perhaps it came with gentrification, that battle over the invasion of Harlem by whites, many of them looking for property. The statue of Powell is a work reminiscent of East Block public art years ago in which the heroic was turned into kitsch. But it was a beautiful day in New York, election day, and the plaza was busy as usual with CD sellers supplying the afternoon soundtrack of vintage funk for the vendors of impossibly bright gold jewelry and tables of factory knockoff perfumes and tables of incense and tables of baseball-style caps. All that human traffic and none of it at that moment aimed at the doors that led to participation in our democracy. I would have bet that those black men waiting at the streetlight weren't talking about the elections. Those young black women on the corner with double strollers weren't talking about the elections either. 
As I walked home, Harlem gave me no sign that an election was even underway. In the end, the turnout was around 36% of the electorate. Even in 1942, when the world was at war, the turnout in the U.S. midterm elections was only 36%. Low turnout on presidential off years has been a problem in American politics since the 1840s. But low turnout is not a problem for those who do not want increased participation from voters. White men over the age of 50 who earn more than 77000 a year, they turned out to vote in 2014. They didn't vote for Obama in 2008 or 2012. They saw the 2010 midterm as a referendum on his presidency. So it is hard for me to credit news analysis that wants to say some surge of voter anger created a wave of repudiation of the president's policies. The opposition to Obama has been constant, relentless, very much like the opposition to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, or even the opposition to Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court decision that in 1954 struck down segregation in the schools. In America, the opponents of change, the opponents of social justice don't rest. From year to year, they scheme to keep power, to take back power, to limit the power of the chief executive if he isn't one of them. I didn't think of my parents on election day until I got back from the polls and unlocked my front door. (coughs) Yet it is for them that I cast my vote. I go to the polls in memory of those who are no longer here. I remember my father saying that the people in America who want to hold blacks back will stop at nothing, and for us on our side not to be vigilant was a grave error. I remember how tired I used to get of him going on and on about racism in America. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana in the 1950s and 1960s, time of uh, decades of economic prosperity and a time when there was a sense of forward movement in the struggle for equal rights. History and truth were on our side, however numerous and powerful those angry whites were. We were not to be denied especially those of us who reaped the benefits of this struggle and were not asked to pay a price for it. Our parents did that for us. I came of age in the 1970s when the NAACP memberships of my parents seemed ineffectual and out of date, though the Carter administration represented a brief period when federal power was again on our side. But the conservative backlash since Nixon and Reagan has been intense. The impeachment of Bill Clinton is certainly a chapter of that backlash. I read the election of 2008 as our breaking free as a nation, our getting away from the era of the solid South, moving toward the creation of a new liberal coalition, blacks, women, Latinos, youth, labor unions, gay people, religious progressives. Those votes are still out there. In 2014, women as a group may have voted against the legalization of marijuana, men voted for it, but women did not vote Republican in the midterm election of 2014 either. Single mothers comprise 35% of the eligible electorate. 50% of children under the age of two belong to a minority. News of these demographics and what they mean have been making the rounds. The Republicans have seen the future in these statistics even though the New York Times recently ran a story that said in the midterms the Republicans made inroads into the Democratic vote 
among youth, among Latinos, and that it was not low voter turnout alone that accounted for Republican victories. But I wonder how significant those inroads really are, how lasting. Therefore, renewed efforts at voter suppression on the part of Republican-controlled state legislatures or judgments from the activist Supreme Court that uphold voter suppression should not surprise us. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's eloquent dissents on the need for a robust Voting Rights Act and on the injustice of voter ID laws will live on in our literature. Citizens United, the disastrous Supreme Court decision that opened the floodgates of anonymous, unlimited contributions to political campaigns because corporations have the same rights as individuals, is yet another element that helps to distort and subvert the democratic process in America. The corruption of our politics is starting to rob the next generation of hope, and as James Baldwin said, it is impossible to live without hope. I heard a young black man say recently that there won't be any more Martin Luther Kings or Malcolm X's or even Marcus Garvey's. I just assumed from the way he talked about Obama as not really being in charge that he never voted, this 31-year-old, hard-working black man with a young family. But he corrected me. He voted for Obama twice, the only times he has voted, and perhaps the only times he ever will have voted. He has little faith in the system, as it used to be called, but he doesn't blame white people entirely. He sees black people as unable to sustain the necessary unity, as having been kept down for so long that we are willing to betray the cause of freedom just to get a little ahead personally. He also doesn't see black achievers, black celebrities, or the black middle class in general as particularly interested in helping the black poor. Oprah will build a school in South Africa, but not in Tennessee where she comes from, he said. I thought of the way my father used to quote Edith Piaf, remember where you came from and send the elevator back down. Blacks outvoted whites in 2012, creating a turnout gap. As a voting bloc, blacks are unified enough to be an essential part of the new liberal coalition that brought Obama to the presidency. A reason why the strategies to limit the vote are aimed at black voters as being among the poor who do vote. The restrictions on early voting, the end of same-day registration, the end of Sunday voting, or requirements for a voter ID that are hard to meet for those without the money, without birth certificates, without easy access to computers or means to get to a motor vehicle branch. Then too, a number of black people are denied the vote or wrongly assume that they cannot vote because of having a history in the criminal justice system. Britt Staples estimated in 2009 that some three million people have been disenfranchised in this way. But the young black man I was speaking to about politics was thinking more along the lines of FBI informers, infiltrators of organizations. For me, if there is a living symbol of a black person betraying black history, then it is Clarence Thomas. In his long career as a litigator for the NAACP, Thurgood Marshall argued 50 cases before the Supreme Court and won 50 cases, a record unmatched in U.S. legal history. That Bush nominated the unqualified Clarence Thomas to take Marshall's seat on the court, not that there has to be a black seat, shows the contempt of the Bush family for black people and for U.S. institutions. I remember the arguments of some black people that we had to support Thomas simply because he was black. 
Perhaps that was the last time anyone made such a fatuous argument, and you could tell that Anita Hill was telling the truth. Thomas routinely votes with Scalia, and it is an embarrassment. But black people who don't want to be with other black people, who want to limit their exposure to other black people, or who somehow believe that they are exempt from what used to be called the black experience, such people have been with us always. It would be weird if self-hatred were not a part of the story of a people who have been so stigmatized. The young black man who said Martin Luther King's like would not come again, he knows the civil rights struggle only as history, as grainy footage, or that uncanny, eerie speech King made the last night of his life about having been to the mountaintop and seen the promised land. Someone like King comes along in history very rarely in the first place, but I think what the young man was saying was that an age of heroism seemed to be over, and the era of mass demonstrations for civil rights was a time when ordinary people overcame their fears and found something extraordinary in themselves, that willingness to stand up against incredible odds, to brave the violence, to take the risk. Those were schoolchildren on those marches, students getting on those buses. They changed America. We now have a black political class, thousands and thousands of elected black officials at local, state, and national levels. And there is a black man in the White House, and he is the most glamorous political figure in the world. But what puzzles many people is why this fact, an established black political class, has not helped the people who most need help. I never argued with my father about these questions. He could go on for hours. But my sisters and their friends did, and I remember those heated discussions, as they were called, about whether we should work to change the system from within or whether the real need was to tear down the system and start over. My father was right. A riot was not a rebellion. It was the further destruction of our own neighborhoods, and they did not foster revolutionary conditions. But civil disobedience was revolutionary because the American authorities didn't have an answer for it any more than the British did in India. The police liked nothing better than to have the Black Panthers take them on. Anyone who thought the Panthers would win did not know America, my father said. But I remember how unsure the authorities were back then in the 1960s and 1970s. Upheaval threatened on several fronts, which is why they ended the draft to take away the number one, number one reason for discontent among middle-class white students, to separate white students from blacks before they could get together. In the early 1970s, Huey Newton had talked to the Weather Underground about making common cause, but that was a flirtation conducted on the fringes. The argument between generations in my house was over the definition of black power. Stokely Carmichael and his supporters interpreted black power as a form of black nationalism, conventional politics with a separatist inflection. Black people would elect their own sheriffs and mayors. Carmichael had come to prominence in 1966 when King's movement for change failed to catch on in the North, um, though he, it had increased black voting dramatically in the South because of what King had done to bring about passage of the Voting Rights Act the most important piece of legislation bearing on the electoral process since the passage of the 14th Amendment during Reconstruction. Carmichael could imagine a self-contained, independent black electoral politics 
because the black population in the north and south was concentrated in the large cities, their inner cities abandoned and in decay because of white flight, middle class flight it should be called, because blacks who could get away from inner city schools did so at the first opportunity. Carmichael had a radical agenda for his black politicians. The National Black Political Convention, held in Gary, Indiana in 1972, called for proportional representation in Congress, national health care, and end to capital punishment and recognition of Palestinian rights. Delegates came from a number of political affiliations, but the convention discussions were predicated on the declared belief that blacks could not rely on either political party, that their interests would be ignored when it suited the major parties. Carmichael's definition of black power was countered by a vision of black political involvement articulated at the time by long-term civil rights activist Bayard Rustin. He argued that blacks on their own didn't have the numbers and they had to work in coalition with progressive whites in their groups. At the time, the argument could sound like it was about staying true or selling out, resistance or accommodation. Black politics had been viewed in these terms since the quarrel between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington at the turn of the 20th century. Washington had urged blacks to make the best of things wherever they were, but Du Bois attacked Washington's policies of accommodating Jim Crow and the souls of black folk, and the NAACP, with which Du Bois was so identified, advocated agitating for equal rights through the courts. This either-or once seemed a genuine philosophical choice but the historical truth is that black people have always relied on both approaches. It has often been noted that not a single accusation of rape was made against a black man in the South during the Civil War when white men were away at the front. The rape charge was a feature of the post-Reconstruction South. Often a consensual relationship existed between the white girl and the black boy, but she was forced to denounce her lover when her family discovered the relationship. But lynching was also used as a way to take a black man's property, his store, his tavern, or his newspaper. He was killed and his family run off. In 1921, the whites of Tulsa, Oklahoma, so resented the flourishing black business district that they provoked a riot and burned down the whole district. The destruction of the black middle-class businessmen was a form of voter suppression because these were the blacks who could pass complicated literacy tests or pay poll taxes, keep receipts, travel to the polls and organize groups. Blacks were allowed those businesses whites didn't want in the personal service sector, barbers, funeral homes, but the oppression of black people has been economic as well as political, and the solutions to problems posed by this oppression have concentrated on the economic as well as the political. So too in electoral politics, the self-contained black vote has always been part of a larger coalition. Jesse Jackson's campaigns of the 1980s were more than symbolic because he made the black vote an important force in the Democratic primaries. This vote became a cornerstone for the coalitions that would go on to elect Carolyn Mosley Brown to the Senate in Illinois in 1992 and Deval Patrick to the Massachusetts State House in 2006. And then there was the overwhelming black vote for Obama but even that vote worked in conjunction with other voting blocs and helped to overcome the solid South in 2008 and let Obama replace the South with the West 
in 2012. Unfortunately, the members of this new liberal coalition are the ones most likely to stay home during midterm elections. The Democratic Party knew from 2010 how important a get-out-the-vote was likely to be in 2014 and that the gridlock with Congress amounted to a nullification of the presidential election. Instead of talking about how Obama disappointed the country, we ought to talk about how the country has let down its first black president, starting with the ambivalence about him in his own party. Those moderate Democrats who didn't want him to campaign for them in 2014 were not going to win anyway, but as the party that passed the Affordable Health Care Act, they ought to have stuck by their record, especially since the country is in favor of the Health Care Act until you, call, until you call it Obamacare. Prior to the election, Obama's approval ratings weren't fallen, falling. They'd been at 42% all year long. We complain about this man of intelligence and integrity, but the problem people have with Obama is that he is a black man. The racism in the country is depressing, and it ex can express itself as disrespect for our president, he who got us out of Iran and Afghanistan and saved us from economic meltdown. That is why I get impatient with black people who suggest that Obama somehow isn't black enough. There are plenty of white people who think he's certainly black enough. They know he's not a socialist. They just can't forgive him for being a black man in charge of all that money. It's not natural. They don't trust him. That's why they freak out when Obama appears to be taking the black side of things, speaking up for the black point of view, as in the Trayvon Martin case. And black people get frustrated that the black point of view is never allowed to be simply the American point of view. Similarly, it, it upsets me to hear criticisms of Obama from the left. One young black woman told me she didn't vote in 2012 because she got tired of being presented with the lesser of two evils. What is evil about Obama, I wanted to scream at her. We think black literature is an avant-garde literature because it's black, but that overlooks how commercially successful pioneers like Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes were desperate to be. I know from my perfect, and I mean perfect, professional church-going cousins that black people are not born hippies. Obama had to be talked into marriage equality. He had to search his soul to get there, this handsome straight man with the graceful left-handed layup. We read Dreams from My Father and rightly saw Obama as an heir of the struggle for civil rights. We did not read The Audacity of Hope and so missed how much Obama believes in being a part of the system. It was not idle or mere vanity for Obama to present himself and his mixed-race history as a chance for the country to reconcile in him. He was right. Critics on the left are angry that the throat of capitalism was exposed in the Great Recession, but Obama didn't jump on it. He squandered his mandate for change, they say. But what would have happened, what would the tone have been had this president attempted to reform Wall Street his first month in office? Maybe he thought it better to offer stability, though I regret his choices for economic advisors as much as, say, Cornell West does. Obama is a centrist, and this is his gift to the Democratic Party for now. So long as he occupies the middle ground, the Republican Party is forced to operate on his right. He cannot be forced from the middle. 
any more than he can be made to lose his cool in public. A black man is the face of the same position, and white people can't forgive him for that either, are still waiting for him to jump up black and loud. But in the meantime, his sheer presence makes the Republicans unable to deploy fully their old arsenal of racial provocation. They can't criminalize race so easily. They can't carry on with the demonization of the black man, a vote unifier since Harding, who, it was rumored, had black grandparents. In the days following the Civil War, the roads were full of black men on the move, trying to get somewhere better, and especially looking for loved ones who'd been sold away from them. The first vagrancy laws in U.S. history were passed to keep these black men, this labor force, in place. If you couldn't say where you lived or worked, then the local jurisdiction could charge you with vagrancy and make you work for the county or the state from anywhere from 30 days to six months on the chain gangs. In 1907, the Raleigh, North Carolina police force requested larger guns on the grounds that a drug epidemic was underway and a black man on cocaine wasn't a black man anymore. He was dangerous, not a docile darkie. Black youth were excluded from programs in the cities that helped immigrant boys to assimilate. Where black boys were criminals, white boys were youth who had committed a crime. They could be reformed. But under Obama and his attorney general, this conversation has at last begun to change in the popular mind. America knows that Willie Horton is a lie. But what Du Bois called personal whiteness is why a lot of people, including immigrants who want to prove that they belong, want the stand-your-ground laws. They want being white to mean advantage and privilege still. What will be unbearable is the Republican Party coming on all friendly to prove in time for 2016 that it can be a party of governance. I hope the Tea Party ruins the leadership's plans. Obama has paved the way for a woman president, and frankly, I don't understand why people don't vote given the kinds of people who don't want you to. It would seem to me that to vote, the vote has become in itself a form of protest, a radical act. The police killing of an unarmed black youth in Ferguson, Missouri, stayed in the news because people wouldn't leave the streets. Soon it will be time to transfer that political will to the city council. But will people come in from the cold? If you want to make police forces accountable, why not be among the people to whom they must answer, that is, the local authorities that hire police officers? Reverend King talked a half century before Obama was first elected president about how white opposition was not the only obstacle for black voters. Blacks had to achieve an interchange, had to overcome centuries of fear and intimidation, had to insist that they belonged. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 succeeded because of the voter education projects different civil rights organizations instituted throughout the South. We need such commitments now. Income, inequality, class, the concentration of wealth in a few hands, all nearly impossible subjects to get aired in the mainstream media, but Occupy Wall Street put them there, and none of it will go away, just like those kids who used to storm G7 summits in order to dramatize their campaign about climate. Occupy Wall Street was very interracial, and maybe for a new generation, white and black and brown and yellow, 
will discover that much more unites them than separates them when it comes to contemplating the American future. Is it too late? Is it ever too late? I fear that we have become like those countries we used to feel sorry for, where the state and the society have less and less to do with each other. All that bickering on those political commercials, all that bickering of talking heads on television, doesn't it drive people away, and isn't it intended to? Aren't we supposed to feel defeated, powerless, fed up? Stay away from politics, it's not worth the trouble. Leave it to others, it's tedious and time-consuming, like being on a co-op board with a certain type of bossy person who is just unbearable. November 9th was the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. 25 years ago, I was living in Berlin. I'd moved to Europe to get away from everything my father talked about, everything I knew to be very real. I was on the wall that night, running back and forth on the slippery surface in front of the Brandenburg Gate. It was like a dream. By the morning, I'd never felt more American in my life. I was invisible in the German crowd. We used to laugh about how boring German politics were, but the boredom was a sign of their maturity. They engaged in problem-solving. They hadn't come to this maturity gradually. They'd learned in the hardest way possible where ideology leads, what forces can be unleashed when the democratic institutions of a republic are undermined. I'm not saying that the U.S. Is now faces the, that in the U.S. now the choices between fascism and democracy. But if we don't begin to show up consistently, then we are letting the country head toward the kind of society where what people fear most is getting stuck with people on the bottom, crabs in the barrel. The U.S. is much less like the country I remember and much more like the rest of the world. I'll leave that out. I'm not sure. Well, I'll leave it out. You never know what you think from day to day. Ralph Ellison once said that. Well, no, I'll say it. It's time to stop worrying what the right is saying and time to reignite the conversation among ourselves and our allies. Ralph Ellison once said that New York was his Paris and Harlem his left bank. I've moved back to the U.S. after more than two decades abroad, and I've moved back an orphan. You become an orphan no matter what age you are when your parents die because the bridge to your past disappears with them. Who is that in that photograph? The people who could tell me aren't here anymore. I remember when my father and mother showed me Harlem for the first time, not long after the riot in 1964. We were in New York for the World's Fair. All that broken glass along 125th Street silenced my father, this brave, feeling, always thinking, always talking man. Later, he remembered how much fun he and my mother used to have in Harlem in the late 1940s. I often wonder what he would say about it now. As the traditional identity Harlem had seems threatened by gentrification. I see three white hipsters raced by several methadone addicts bent over on a pause button in the middle of the sidewalk, the past and the future meeting at a crossroads. My father would say that Harlem was worth saving, even if that meant it wasn't all black anymore. To save it, you had to open the place up to new people, and it's a mistake to think that white hipsters don't know where they are, don't know the history, and aren't proud to be there with you. Thank you. We have time for some questions, and the mic is in the middle, and... Um, 
Mr. Pickett will be signed up at the front, so we have books in the back for sale. Okay. Any questions? It's a lot of pressure on you. <laughs> I just have one. Was, were those remarks that you made written uh, post the publication of the book? Because I noticed you mentioned 2014. Yes. So are they take off of what you've already written? Um, Blackballed is uh, a sort of meditation. Uh, it's built up from books from my father's library that I never wanted to have anything to do with. And it's a history of the black vote, starting with uh, a little town called Promised Land, South Carolina, that my great-great-grandfather and great-great-great-grandfather went to, and they voted. They went to the polls, you know, with weapons and things like that. Um, but eventually, of course, the vote in South Carolina, though blacks were 54% of the population, only 3% could vote. And it goes through in that way. Uh, in 1920, uh, the Klan reemerged because black women had tried to take advantage of the 19th Amendment. Uh, and there were a lot of riots and blacks killed. Uh, one black man who owned a, uh, uh, an orange grove in particular was subjected to a hideous death. Uh, and, you know, lynching always has behind it, you can take his property, that sort of thing. Uh, blacks uh, try, uh, were switching to the Republican Party. Uh, like Condoleezza Rice's parents, because to be Democrat in the South meant something entirely different. Blacks weren't a part of the New Deal because FDR couldn't get it passed uh, unless he left blacks out. And so it goes through this history and into the 60s in King and uh, the National Political Convention in 72 and then Jackson and then on down to our moment. So it's meant to be this kind of meditation on things I resisted knowing that you can't help but know. So it's also personal, you know. It's a, it's a sort of an apology to my parents, really. And your parents, you grew up in South Carolina? No, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. My parents were very active in the local NAACP and, and other things like that. And, uh, you, you know, the NAACP is a grassroots organization, was always attacked for being you know, sort of middle class and this and that, but people forget that uh, black professionals, lawyers, doctors, dentists, didn't have bosses who could tell them or hint to them darkly, if you vote, you'll get fired. Um, uh, a lot of the lawsuits that the NAACP initiated started on the grassroots level. My father sued the Indianapolis to Fire Department himself to make them desegregate. He sued the police department himself to make them desegregate. He sued the airport himself to make them desegregate, things like that. So, yeah, no, not, not, you know, but all those Pinkneys come from South Carolina. And I had a very snobbish grandfather who said blacks who could read spelled it with a C and those who couldn't didn't. But you want to ask him, how do you know that? You know? <laughs> Sorry. You answered part of my question, but I still want to go on. I was going to ask you a little bit more about your background because the description here but with that said, the fact that your family was involved in the Indiana NAACP, you touched on it a little bit when you talked about after the 64 Civil Rights Act, the dispersion of the black community. Elaborate a little bit more on some of the that irony that how that coming into being may have diluted on well, I think it is a big problem that, you know, uh, um, uh, 
that there isn't this kind of um, reaching back and helping out. Uh, you know, blacks move and then they sort of act as though they've never been anywhere else. Um, every generation redefines blackness and so you get from black youth another book saying I'm different from my parents' generation and I kind of get really sort of embarrassed because I remember when, oh, I used to say these kind of things. And I'd have to say one of the things about getting older is that I do mind that all of the cliches of life are true, not some of them, but all of them. And I really mind that. Uh, but Specifically in terms of physical proximity. Well, a lot of people in Harlem left because of the schools. Well, a lot of people moved out because, of course, you know, to move out was the American dream. In Indianapolis, we moved in the early 60s to the suburbs, way out, and the only way to get to school was a 45-minute bus ride. Everyone took it, so when all the stuff started about busing in the 70s, I had to laugh because most of America gets to school on a bus, not, not neighborhood schools. Uh, I also, you know, we lived across from a segregated country club where not even Jewish people could belong to it. And so the, for the first few elections, my parents had to vote in a segregated country club, uh, which I always, always thought was funny, but that my mother found deeply offensive. Um, and she didn't believe in country clubs, not even black ones. Uh, the end result is that we belong to the Indianapolis Hebrew congregation, and I know a lot of Israeli folk dances. Um, um, because, of course, everyone was terribly nice. White people are always nice when there are not that many of you. So when there's sort of too many of you, they get nervous, but when they're not that many of you. But the only kids who asked you home were Jewish because they didn't know any better or they couldn't wait to have you sort of come over. But now, more poor people live in the suburbs than in the cities for the first time in U.S. history. Uh, uh, and so the voting, but it hasn't really changed some voting patterns in that the districts, as they're drawn, uh, you know, these concentrations of blacks, it's all still in the same district city in the next county out, city in the next county out. So it hasn't really had an effect yet. What happened is that, you know, it used to be in the old days, all blacks lived in the same place, uh, regardless of class. So there could be a big house here and a, and a, a real sort of ramshackle one next to it. But everyone was there uh, facing the same things. And now we have a kind of stratification or um, upper class blacks don't have to see poverty any more than upper-class whites do. So that's had an effect, I think, uh, just in terms of that feeling of responsibility for others is kind of gone. Yes, sir. Joe, in your research, have you found a difference in the rate? Can you use the mic? Sure. I'm wearing a hundred sweaters. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. We read in one day. I'm interested in in the rate of voting between groups. Did you find a difference in the rate of voting between the black middle class and black poor, and blacks in the north compared to blacks in the south? Different rates of voting. I think that among the middle class, there's probably you know a large large difference just in terms of habits of voting, 
traditions of voting, voting in the House, uh, stability of address, uh, whether you're a property owner or a renter, for some reason these you know, have an effect. So um, I think that, uh, but I think that when there's a black candidate, it cuts across class lines and everybody turns out. Um, a lot of blacks are now leaving the North and moving back to the South, the old country. Uh, and so I would imagine that um, um, voting is down in one place and up in another. But I have to tell you that I was so disheartened, I couldn't look up the vote in Atlanta. I just couldn't face it. You know, the next day I went to Interstellar, which is not a good film, and, uh, you know, just wanted to escape. So I haven't sort of done that Nate Silver going through and looking at the numbers yet. But I would imagine that it depended on what the particular elections were. And some, somehow this time, a lot of the data is hard to read because the state contests themselves had such particular local personalities that you don't know that the reasons people voted for that candidate, not that one, don't necessarily translate into national trends. So there was a lot of that this time around. And a lot of incumbency vulnerability, I think. Uh, had a lot to do with it. Um, yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, question. Yeah, go to the oh. mic, please. I have a quick question for you. I um, I listen to a lot of right right wing radio. They had a real celebratory mood right now. They're in what? A, a very celebratory. Yeah, yeah. But I read. Uh, she wrote it in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. I think it was in 2012, oh. 2013 or so. Uh, where you talked about uh, how the, uh, I guess it's gerrymandering, in mm-hmm. a certain way we dilute concentrations of black voters across the country. Mm-hmm. So now we have a lot of Republicans who are now being elected. Um, so you have a lot of states now, I've heard a figure, 25 states, 35 states have Republican governors. So you have these so-called red states and a lot of blue dots in it. So how do you see that terms of the future of the country over the short term? Well, the, the districts can't be redrawn until 2020. Uh, and... Uh, you know, they, this, the, it's sort of done in two ways, either scattering the vote, drawing the districts so the black vote is scattered, or drawing the districts so the black vote is concentrated in that one area, and then you get sort of these sort of white districts elsewhere. Um, that's, how, that's how they do it. Or in city elections, instead of voting ward by ward or district by district, you make the city council all city elections so that, you know, in this ward or that ward, Blacks may win, but in an all-city one uh, where, you know, everyone's elected from the whole city, they're outnumbered. Um, It's that kind of thing. In the short term, like in the next two years, uh, if you go on listening to right-wing radio, you're a braver man than I am, you know. I my father used to say, "Oh, I, I read the Wall Street Journal every day because I want to know what the enemy thinks." I think, "Oh, you know, all right, fine." And this was the Wall Street Journal, not Shock Radio or that kind of thing. In the short term, the next two years, I 
I know that the Republicans want to come off as sort of moderate to try and move to that central presidential ground. I don't think their Tea Party will let them. Um, and uh, I say in the book that, you know, my father was rather ambivalent about Obama for lots of reasons, uh, going from just being jealous that a young black man could do things he couldn't. Uh, there's an element of that. Um, uh, but um, he would recognize these people in the Tea Party and know who they are. These are just kind of Goldwater Republicans on, on amphetamines, you know. Uh, we know who they are. They're back. That's why, you know, the real... Nobody wants the social clock turned back. They don't. Uh, um, they just want to control the social destiny of others. But for themselves, they don't want the social clock turned back. People want to wear jeans. They want to be able to have sex on the first date. Um, you know, if your daughter's at Yale and, and you're this Baptist minister um, and she gets pregnant, you don't want her to have that baby. You want her to go on and finish her education at Yale. And actually, black physicians in the South uh, in the old days made a fortune performing abortions on whites who didn't want other whites to know. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a real lucrative thing for black physicians in the South. Uh, so nobody wants the social clock turned back. You know, the Congress is going to fiddle with uh, Obamacare, re rename it and call it their own. Oh, now it works because the country is actually for it. So you'll find that the Republican Congress actually takes a lot of Obama's programs and claim them as their own because they don't really have any themselves. You know, and, or what they have, none of it works, you know, or won't work. You know, their think tanks tell them these statistics don't work out. They just sort of bury the report and, and don't talk about it anymore. This is the problem that the conservatives have with liberalism in America is its prestige. You know, the prestige of liberalism just won't go away. Uh, it's because all, everything we are and come from and work for comes from that side of the aisle, you know, from these people who are thinking forward into the future. And the Constitution is very uneasy about direct democracy, which is why we have something so bizarre as the Electoral College. You know, the, the uh, distrust of direct democracy is in some ways as much an American tradition as the quest for freedom. Um, but the conservative objections to the wider uh, franchise haven't changed since the late 19th century. Uh, it's the same argument. Voting is not a right, it's a privilege, and you have to prove that you can handle it. Well, black people have been told they have to prove themselves before they've become full citizens ever since uh, Reconstruction. So I sort of don't buy this, but... You know, they used to use these things against immigrant groups, too. Uh, uh, when the radical Republicans passed the 14th Amendment for blacks, they wouldn't give the Chinese working on the railroad in California the vote. Um, or New York State in the late 19th century found the Jewish vote so uh, um, radical that um, sometimes voter registration was uh, designed so that it just happened to fall on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, so, you know, this is a part of the American experience is there are people who don't want you to vote. So they kind of just keep the local stuff quiet. 
they can't do anything about the presidential razzmatazz, and I don't think the Republicans can get that anytime soon, as much as they may want. And so in a way, the reason they've really grabbed the states and the Congress is because they can't, they don't have the votes to get the White House on the platform that they have, you know, and they can't get back to the middle because Obama's there, and nobody they have, Walker, Bush, none of these people can beat Hillary. I mean, I like Elizabeth Warren, but nobody can beat Hillary. So, you know, that's what I think will happen. May her health hold. Yes? Absolutely. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Baltimore, and I'd also mention that um, a lot of the ideas with Obamacare were actually Republican ideas before they became part of Obamacare as well, right? Um, I appreciate the conversation, and very often we talk about this in terms of a national election or a Republican versus a Democrat national issue, and that's very important, certainly, for national, um, national policy, Supreme Court justices, all of those things. But we live in a city where there are no elected Republicans, and the issue that we have in a lot of cases in the off-term elections is that a lot of folks just don't vote at all. And where that's really the key, and I appreciate you bringing up poverty, is that we have a number of neighborhoods in Baltimore that um, came out swimmingly for Obama in 2008 and 2012, but just don't come out in the local elections. And on a day-to-day -day basis, um, the impact is so much greater. Yes. There's, no, there's no incentive for elected officials, even locally, to go to those neighborhoods, to be engaged in those neighborhoods, and it's probably more detrimental. I just wanted to see... No, I, I agree with you. I mean, how funds are allocated matters as much on a local level as on a national level. Uh, everyone keeps quiet about local politics because it's such a club of paying your dues and then being rewarded that they don't want or they just don't think of getting more people involved than necessary, you know, because it would certainly change things in various cities. I mean, one thing I didn't say, and I realized it as I was reading it, is that, of course, New York is a state where everyone thinks the vote's already taken care of. I can go have my nails done. I don't have to vote, because, of course, it's going to be democratic. And all that's kind of true, but it's a bad habit to fall into, I find. Uh, and uh, I think that... I don't know. Uh, you know, I urge people to all these local actions and have no intention of taking them myself. You know, I mean, I'm not going to the city council meeting, um, but I think you should. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? So it's that, that's a kind of problem also, but you're dead right. You're absolutely right, I think. Uh, it's a problem. Um, that's why I'm... In, I'm keep thinking of Ferguson, that is there an issue that ignites uh, a kind of ongoing or lasting political involvement. Uh, you know, these towns that have black populations but for mysterious reasons still have white police forces. You know, this is really incredible. Uh, how's this situation going on? And, you know, I don't know. Yeah, okay, the vote. Have a nice question. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, that is the question that I'm having trouble with, is what is the direction for the black man? Integration, not working, segregation, 
I'm for that, or is it nationalism? As you said, back in 1966, we had a young fellow, Samuel Young. He got shot for trying to use the white bathroom. And as in Ferguson and all other circumstances, the blacks are up but only a small period of time. And then time goes by again. So what can we do? Because these small instances, they peer out. Yeah. But, you know, it's like a sort of definition of a neurotic pattern. Same thing happens over and over again, and each time you expect a different result, but it's actually part of a pattern. What breaks the neurotic pattern socially is doing something else. So that gets in the news, and actually Ferguson, those people refusing to leave the streets, kept it in the news. But rather than just peter away, shouldn't they do something else? like have one person run for the council and win so that other communities can see it. You know, it's breaking the neurotic pattern of our own social behavior that we have to do. Uh, we definitely have to do it because I went to the One Million Man March also. So did I. And we had a great time. No. We came back to Baltimore. I hate Farrakhan. And when we went to our meeting... No one was there. Well, that's because what was Farrakhan offering? I found the premise of the march insulting. All the black men in my life never had to be told how to behave, how to treat their families, or what to do for them. The idea that black men needed to be sort of uh, 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 chastised, I found deeply offensive to my father and his father and my uncles and my father's friends. I didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, you know, and I don't like it when Obama and Bill Cosby tell us how to behave. Those got white guys stealing billions and not going to jail, and nobody's telling them that they shouldn't behave like that. This is really crazy. I think what the real point is that we as blacks have to understand is we have to make things happen. Right. Yeah. Starting at the family level. Nobody should be telling you what to do. You have to do the action. And until we do that, I don't think we can move forward. Well, those are two different things, really. I mean, I look at in this deli where I go every day for bad deli coffee because good coffee is wasted on me. Um, I see these young black mothers, and they're getting their, her, their children to school. And the other day, one black mother was, I guess, giving her child what she thought was breakfast. And it's a can of soda, and she's saying, finish it, finish it, like it's orange juice or milk. It's not. Or I see women giving their kid a potato chip, and I think, why not a grape? It's not. But I can't do anything about that kind of behavior. But, you know, if that girl voted and still was that way as a mother, I wouldn't care. You know, I don't, I don't think that our character has bearing on our politics in that way. As a man in your own family, you can do something about it in your family. That's where it spreads off. Well, do it in your home. I don't think it starts at the home. I think it starts at the ballot box. I think it starts at the home. Yeah. That's where you learn all your values. True. That's where you learn everything. True. It starts right there. True. And if it doesn't carry from there, that's why we can't go forward. But a lot of... I went to a meeting where Michelle Alexander, you know, who wrote The New Jim Crow, which is a fantastic book, was talking... 
And one mother stood up and she said, I know all this, but I work two jobs. I'm not at home. I can't supervise my teenage children in that way. Uh, uh, don't think just because I'm working class, I don't have middle class values. She didn't say it like that, but you know, it's an insult to working people to assume their family values are off because they're poor. It's just all families have competition for their children's attentions and loyalties that didn't exist before. And I don't mean just their peers, but everything they see, and we're not even talking about TV anymore. You can't begin to know what your kids are looking at on the internet or what their friends are showing them on their phones. So there's competition sort of from everywhere in that way. Nothing replaces, though, body-to-body being there. You know, if, if people come to meetings and sort of stuff like that. You know, there's a reason politics and the church and black life have always been very close. And, you know, a lot of those ministers who said they were with King weren't. You know, they stayed away, they were scared of him, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a reason black politics uh, sound like church, you know, and that's to kind of bring people in them and give them a place to belong and safety in numbers. And that's what I don't think the youth or even black people have anymore, which is a public place to go. In fact, just the idea of the public is under threat, really. So, thank you, sir. Thank you, and thank you very much. Thank you.